1: I'm Zoe Weinberg, and this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow.
2: Today, we are joined by Lucy Montgomery. She's the founder of Women's College Players Association, which advocates for the health and safety safeguards and player empowerment in women's college sports. She previously worked for Athletes Unlimited and helped launch a women's soccer team in Los Angeles. Angel City FC. Lucy, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, Natalia. Hi, Zoe. Thanks for having me.
2: We're so excited to have you. Um, Something that we always love to ask is to hear a little bit more about how you first became interested in your field of work, so specifically sports, and the intersection of sports and policy.
0: Yeah. Well, let's see. So I grew up in Iowa um, in the mid-90s, and I just loved being outside with my brother um, and all the neighborhood kids. I loved uh, jumping on the trampoline. I loved playing hockey in the street. I loved playing backyard baseball. I just really loved sports. And um, And then when I was about eight in 1999, the U.S. women's soccer team won the World Cup. And that was hosted in the U.S. And I remember just falling in love with Mia Hamm and the rest of the team. Um, And that was when I first started really following women's sports um, and played soccer, basketball, softball, sports um, on teams and ultimately decided to stick with basketball and played through college. And then after college, um, I moved to DC. And that was obviously the perfect intersection of policy and sport, um, and started attending a lot of events in DC that were at the intersection of policy and sport, and just started to realize, wow, there's this whole world outside of balls and strikes, or just the score. And um, it was really fascinating to me to think that, wow, sport, if used right, can be an amazing vehicle for social change. But in many ways, sport can also replicate some of the most um, entrenched problems in society and actually could be a platform to, for things not to go well as well. So um, yeah, it started when I was young. I still love playing sports, um, but I'm also a more critical consumer of them now, just given everything that I've learned about them.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think even throughout my time of knowing you, I've been really inspired by your practice of sports, but also the awareness that you've brought to different types of sports, especially as it comes into talking about gender and sports, policy and sports. I feel like I've learned so much from you. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about how? you founded Women's College Players Association and what your dreams are for the organization. I know it's still very new. Um, it's something that is probably amalgamation of all the things that you've done up to date. So just excited to hear more about your vision and how you ended up here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so like I mentioned, I played basketball in college at WashU in St. Louis, and I had a pretty good experience there. Um, but I think just watching my teammates go through injuries, um, and other just kind of identity problems, just feeling so entrenched in the sport that your heart, it's hard to see anything else. Um, and then when I went back to Stanford, I was the manager for the women's basketball team and also did various things around campus. I was a TA for an undergrad course that had a lot of, um, women athletes in it. And, uh, just kind of understanding further what they were going through on campus um, really really motivated me to uh, want to help improve their lives. And there was a suicide on campus um, my first year of business school that really impacted me. Just thinking, you know, these athletes, they may be on ESPN, they may have a, they might have a full ride to this school, but. There's just like something systemic about college sports that are making especially women athletes suffer and um, really problematic problems with eating disorders, with um, abusive coaching practices, um, overuse injuries, and Basically realizing that at the college level, athletes have very few protections. Um, At the professional level, players associations advocate for the players. They work with the leagues to negotiate contracts. But at the college level, athletes basically have none of those protections. And so my goal with the Women's College Players Association is just for women athletes across the country at the college level to recognize the power of their collective voice and to come together and realize that they actually have a lot more power than they think, and they can have a say in the conditions in which they're operating. It's not the coaches and the administrators, you know, coming down on them. They have the power to organize and to ask for better. And um, they, my hope through that is that just the way that we view college sports fundamentally changes. And so it's not just about wins and losses. It's about making sure that the athletes have a good experience, that they're prepared for life after sport. And that, you know, all of these things that are wrecking them right now, mentally, emotionally, physically, they at least have the power to say we don't have to put up with this. So that is the goal uh, to... It's still very new. I'm still working behind the scenes, just talking to as many athletes as possible. But the end goal would be um, that there is a collective body that represents the, the interests of women women's college athletes.
2: Yeah, I was just going to say, as a former college athlete, and I was on the crew team, like we had weigh-ins. And when you talk about like eating disorders and just all of the things that come with that, being an athlete... Can be incredibly hard and you're put under incredible amount of stress, Mm -hmm. especially depending on like how much you're representing your school and your team. Mm -hmm. Um, If sports is a really big thing at your school, I think it can be even, you know, more intense. Um, So I really, you know, even personally resonate with that. I think to your point around giving them the collective voice to also think about from a business perspective, how are they advocating for themselves, their contracts, like you just come in, you have no business acumen, you don't really have your you've been training to play the sport, not to actually do everything around the sport that comes with that. So that's really cool.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned mandatory weigh ins. I think that is one of the one of the things that I've heard, especially in sports, uh, like long distance running track and field, lightweight rowing, um,
2: Ice skating is not like fundamental weigh-ins, but like even just body image. Yeah,
0: exactly. And uh, there are these things called DEXA scans, which basically give scan your entire body and give kind of an, an output about body fat percentage and just other problem or other numbers that coaches are then having access to and making playing time decisions based on these DEXA scans. And so that's a really big push right now, especially in long-distance running, is to at least have the athlete be able to own their DEXA scan outputs and not basically head coaches wouldn't have access to them, the training staff or the strength and conditioning staff would, but coaches wouldn't be able to access that information to then make, uh, playing decisions off of that.
1: I, that's fascinating because I, um, you know, obviously kind of across the board, uh, the quantified life and yeah. and particularly with regards to fitness has become such a big part of the life of like both probably athletes and also non-athletes. I mean, I'm like wearing a whoop band, for example, and I haven't really thought about the ways in which uh, things like weigh-ins or these DEXA scans, which I wasn't familiar with, um, in 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 some ways kind of create a new – I don't know if I want – I don't know if the term is like a privacy violation, but like there's like something really personal that now is kind of the, you know, part of the database or part of the like property of your team and um and 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 what that must feel like as an athlete and also like what that kind of means from a rights and privacy perspective.
0: Absolutely. And so as an athlete, it's great that you can now see your sleep and that you can see, uh, they call it like load management. A lot of women athletes will wear kind of a chip in their sports bra, which talks about, you know, how many miles they ran that game or what percentage of their, their heart rate was at X percentage of high, whatever during the game. And so there is this fundamental question of like, who owns that data and who can use it to make decisions. Um, Right now, there aren't, I haven't seen any good standards in place. Um, And, you know, at the professional level, that's what I'm saying is like professional players associations go in with against the league and they argue or they have a bargaining agreement that says basically this data belongs to the athletes and no one on the coaching staff can see it. Only the athletes can see it. And so none of that exists at the college level right now
1: that's fascinating I want to switch gears a little bit um one thing that we haven't really talked about so far is the fact that you also I guess sort of separate from sports but maybe we can explore the intersections um have a real interest in politics and and um and mobilizing mobilizing around electoral politics as well as well as public policy itself and you know I think um I think there's a lot of potential, Sort of overlaps and connections between sports and, sports and foreign policy. But I guess from your perspective, what do you see as being the key points of overlap or kind of interplay between global politics, geopolitics, and athletics?
0: Yeah, I think athletes are amazing ambassadors, they're amazing opportunities. Uh, And most athletes really care about the world in which they exist, right? Like they recognize that they have a platform and they want to do something with it. And so I think when I think about what athletes have power to do, it's to make statements, it's to get involved with issues that matter to them and, um, you know, understand where their voice can make a difference. I see it mainly like on the, maybe less on the actual policy side, but uh, like I see athletes, who are getting involved with campaigns, who are showing up for candidates that they care about, who are using their voice. Um, And I think, you know, as we've seen the athletes grow more and more, uh, like socially aware, recognize that they can make a difference, they're willing to use their voice. Um, I think when it comes to like foreign policy in in particular, I, I think I see it showing up, particularly around like global mega events. The World Cup, the Olympics, um, other opportunities for athletes to go to these events and make statements about what they stand for or uh, you know certain issues that matter to them. Especially uh, the Olympics, you know, in China last last year um, in Sochi, Russia, in twenty fourteen, those were huge, huge global moments, and the U.S. athletes, in particular, showing up and not just dominating on the field, but off the field or off the whatever playing surface, uh, showing, you know, interest in advocating for LGBT rights, um, in for advocating for gender equity, and just other, um, you know, ahead of the, when Russia invaded Ukraine last year, a lot of athletes Made public statements at the Olympics, and so I think just like the the platform that sport provides offers you know just an opportunity for athletes to engage and for a lot of eyeballs to see um, those certain displays of advocacy or activism.
1: So one, it feels like. One of the most recent high-profile events in the kind of sports and foreign policy arena was uh, the detention of Brittany Greiner. And, you know, in many ways, um, I, I think everyone would sort of agree that that she became um, really a, a kind of pawn of a, of a larger, you know, sort of geopolitical standoff. But um, at least to me, it seemed like that, you know, that unlawful detention really brought to the fore the ways in which uh, tensions between countries can really come to a head in the form of athletes who's allowed to play where, you know, like where are we, who's allowed to be on what stages, et cetera. But I, I don't know. I'm curious what your perspective is there.
0: Yeah. Obviously the Brittany Griner situation was really, really harrowing. And I'm so thankful that she, you know, the Biden administration was able to bring her back. I think, to me, the interesting thing to consider is why why is Brittany Griner going to play in Russia in the first place? And um, just the fact of the matter is, is that women athletes cannot make a sustainable salary playing women's sports. Only, I mean, I would say they're they're probably making like a hundred to hundred fifty thousand dollars in the U.S. now at WNBA players, and so a lot of them in the past have gone overseas to supplement their income and the superstar players can make up to, you know, one to $1.5 million playing in China or Russia. And so historically more than half of the half of WNBA players, they'll play in the States in the summer. And then in the winter they go overseas to uh, Russia is one of, they have the club that Brittany Griner played for is known for paying their superstars really well and treating them really well. It's just unfortunately in the middle of freezing cold Russia in the middle of winter and other, especially WNBA players are going to China, to South Korea, to Turkey. Um, And I don't think they want to do that. Obviously like they all play year round. That's really hard, especially as you kind of get into your early thirties, mid thirties. But just the reality is that, you know, the players in the U.S., even though they're household names, I mean, there's this really fascinating uh, Atlantic article about um, the most famous low-wage workers in our country are soccer players um, who are, you know, all over the news and all over magazine headlines. Yet their minimum salary is still thirty-five thousand dollars in the domestic league here, and that's a huge improvement over the eight or nine thousand that it was in twenty thirteen. So yeah, just the conditions in which we treat women athletes are kind of forcing this kind of migration and, you know, labor mobility across uh, across the ocean. And it, it's really interesting that the fallout ha- has come to this.
1: Did Brittany Griner's detention uh, force the conversation domestically about why it is that female athletes disproportionately have to travel abroad in order to you know, kind of make ends meet. Like, it, it, did we see any movement on that issue?
0: Yeah, obviously, the WNBA was kind of doing some damage control and just saying, like, we're tr- we're trying to make the economics work of keeping our players here, and they've they've come up with the, it's called player marketing agreements. So they'll play pay some of their players to stay um, domestically. And they have to do like appearances and other promotion stuff for the WNBA. But the reality is, is the sal that amount of money is nowhere close to what they would make overseas. Um, there is there one other like domestic league has popped up called athletes unlimited. And that's like a six week league that's been going on, uh, actually worked for them before. Um, so yeah, I would say Athletes Unlimited is a good option. It just, uh, the top players have not chosen to play in that yet. They're still opting to go overseas.
2: Um, You know, in one of our most recent episodes, we dove into US-Russia relations and the war in Ukraine, and you just, you know, brought up Ukraine previously. Mm -hmm. Um, Ukraine and Afghanistan women athletes continue to play despite the war, violence and restrictions in their countries. And I'm wondering if you can comment on what this means for their countries and their these athletes, but also maybe even the foreign athletes that are coming, you know, from other countries to play in a certain league or a specific season?
0: Yeah, you know, the the story of the Afghanistan women's the, the basketball team last August or I guess it was August 2021, 20, um, when the Taliban uh took the capital, basically the basketball team was kind of thrown into a state of just, you know, they had to flee. They weren't allowed to play their sport in their country anymore. Um, and so it was kind of this humanitarian crisis where they were resettled in Canada. And um, to this day, I think continued to play there. Um, and then right now I've read about Ukrainian soccer teams who play in empty stadiums. Um, it's their kind of sign of silent protests and, um, just their will to fight on even as the war ravages around them. So I think, yeah, just obviously wish it didn't have to be those conditions, but just the unending fight and I've, you know, in Afghanistan, women still riding bikes, even though that's outlawed now, I I think just like amazing displays of tenacity, resilience, um, that are certainly inspiring.
2: And um, when you think about, you know, have you ever seen a demonstration where athletes sort of remove themselves from that role during times of war, violence, restriction? I feel like most of what we see in the news is quite positive about athletes really banding together, being those, to your point, ambassadors for their countries. And so I'm wondering if there is probably a a side for athletes where they don't have to be the heroes. They aren't necessarily banding together or protesting. They are just another human being and maybe feel unsafe or maybe feel like, you know, they need to remove themselves from the scene. I'm just wondering if you have any vignettes on that.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the first one that comes to mind, ironically, like she removed herself, but in doing so became a hero. Um, so it's the story of Maya Moore. She was a, a basketball player, uh, one of the WNBA's best athletes. And she stopped playing basketball because she want, she felt that a man that she knew had been wrongfully convicted of murder or a a serious crime. He was being held in a Missouri um, prison and she felt he was wrongly imprisoned. And so she left the WNBA to basically advocate for him and like left her career, left her everything to go fight for this man's freedom. And she did that for, I believe, two years. And in 2020, he was actually exonerated. Um, And so... I think that was a really powerful example of someone saying, you know what, like sports no longer defines me. I am like at the pinnacle of my career. And, um, you know, I care so much about this cause that I'm willing to give up sport and, um, put my efforts out else- elsewhere. So I think that's the, the story that really comes to mind of someone just being like, you know what, I'm going to like sport is not the end-all be-all, and I'm going to uh, use my my talents and my treasures elsewhere.
1: That's really interesting. Um, Coming back to Russia for just a second, it has seemed to me like there are often punishments that are doled out to certain countries. In this case, you know, I'm thinking of the banning of Russia from the last Olympics for you know a long longstanding um, you know doping uh, scandal. Um, and you know the the sort of compelling of of Russian athletes to compete sort of independently of their of their kind of of their government. And obviously, on a public stage, I guess it's sort of humiliating. but do these sort of form of athletic sanctions, work? Like are they are they effective in actually getting a country to follow the rules going forward or to or to sort of behave better? Um or is it really just sort of naming and shaming in a symbolic way? Does that make sense? Yeah.
0: The short answer is no, they don't work. Um so basically what happened in 2014, the Winter Olympics were in Sochi, Russia. And as uh, there's a documentary called Icarus on Netflix that exposes basically a state sanctioned doping scheme uh, whereby Russians were at the Olympics falsifying urine tests of their athletes um, so that they would appear clean even though they had cl- they had taken you know performance enhancing supplements, steroids. Um, So the International Olympic Committee launches an investigation into Russia and comes down with a very weak penalty of that, okay, Russian athletes, basically, they can still compete, they just can't wear the flag. And they, you know, they are just competing as individuals, not under uh, the country of Russia, the anthem won't be played. They won't walk in as Russia um, and basically, like, no, uh, it, there's just no semblance of Russia being there. But unfortunately, uh, like, the athletes are still there. And if I remember co- correctly, I think Putin went to Beijing in last, last winter and, like, showed up and, you know just the fact that he's like there to me suggests that like the sanctions weren't that serious. And, um, yeah, to be honest, I don't, they were not
2: effective at all. So switching modes quickly, you helped launch a women's soccer league in LA and it's so timely because I think we've really seen the rise of global women's soccer and also the attendance records being shattered in nearly every country, which is just so awesome to see. I'm just curious, why now? Like, why do you think now this is all starting to happen? Um, and you know, maybe even tell us a little bit about your experience with launching that league. I mean, it can't be easy.
0: Yeah, I think especially soccer is a really interesting sport for women's sports right now. It's such a, a global game and just, you know, there are so many European leagues. There's the Women's World Cup this year in Australia and New Zealand. And basically, so my experience launching L- uh Angel City in Los Angeles, um, I think why now is because women's sports have so- like – their ceiling to grow is like huge. And so from a business perspective, if you want to get in early and watch it, you know, 5X, 10X, 50X, like women's sports is where you go. Uh, If you look at like right now, a lot of NHL, NFL, um, NBA teams are being sold in the billions of dollars. Whereas women's soccer, when I joined angel city, the expansion fee was like $2 million. So teams were being sold or started for effectively $2 million. And so now uh, this summer, uh, the Bay area is getting a team. They paid $50 million to get into the league. So in three years it 25 X. And so I think from like a business perspective, now is the time to invest in women's sports. There's just been like huge growth and um, how, basically how leagues make their money is through media rights deals. And so th- those values are skyrocketing. Uh, there's been a lot more sponsorship interest. And I think just soccer uh, just because of its global appeal is a r- really appealing um, like opportunity for investment. There's also, I think I tell a lot of people here, there's a lot of like global sports that Americans just aren't as super familiar with like cricket, rugby, Cycling, like those sports are exploding globally and like women's participation. Women are participating in the Tour de France for the last summer was the first time. So these opportunities are just like really, really big. And um, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of money, but if I did, that's where I would be uh, putting it as an investment.
2: I was just going to ask you, so for just regular humans, like are <laughs> there ways that, you know, people are, you know, either crowdfunding or crowdsourcing money for these um investments. I just
0: Yeah. And interestingly, so two women, uh actually from Stanford GSB just started the first fund that will invest in women's sports exclusively. So they raised I think it's a hundred or hundred and fifty million dollars to basically buy teams, um, and kind of roll them up under one umbrella. So I think it's it's really interesting to see, you know, that's the first fund that's focused specifically on women's sports. And, I, you know, it's going to be awesome to see what that money can do to improve the landscape.
1: I think it's, um, you know, you awesome. You mentioned the kind of role of media and media contracts and relationships and things like that in, you um, know, in, in sort of driving revenue to a sport and also, I think, making it a more attractive investment opportunity and also potentially in exposing Americans to sports um, outside of the U.S. that are quite popular in most parts of the world. And it, of course, makes me think of the role that media has played uh, and television has played in Formula One and the wildly popular, you know, Drive to Survive series on Netflix, which I myself am also a fan of. And I think it's, you know, part of me thinks it's very cool that an unscripted Netflix show can drive so much interest in a sport that historically Americans were not particularly plugged into, but it also is a sport that's like entirely male. (laughs) And, And so I guess I wonder, like, what should be the drives to survive of some like international sport that is largely dominated by women? Um, and And would people watch it?
0: Yeah, that's such a good question. And it's like, okay, so what makes drive to survive so compelling, right? It's like the narrative, it's the characters that you are obsessed with them and you are like suddenly are rooting for them. And so I think it's just like, that storytelling that like makes you connect with characters, I think women's sports would really, really benefit from a lot more of that because the athletes themselves are so amazing. Like I cannot understate how amazing to be the best in the world at your sport, to be constantly advocating for pay equity, for other, you know, social justice issues using your platform to stick your neck out time and time again, to try to make things around you better all while training at the highest levels of competition. And like a lot of them have really kind of nuanced interests. A lot of them are really into fashion or they're really, they have like, they might be a DJ or they can, you know, play the piano or do something crazy. So these women you know, a lot of them describes themselves as multi-hyphenate. They're businesswomen, they're activists, they're entrepreneurs, they're musicians, they're fashionistas. And so I. it's just like, I guarantee you, there is a women athlete out there that you will fall in love with, that you will like just as much as any of the Formula One racers. It's just like getting those stories out there. I know Netflix has started uh, a tennis one, tennis documentary i um i think it's
2: they just did one on a gol- a golf one yeah. but it was again all male golfers yeah
0: so the tennis one was split half male half female um i'm not sure i i only made it through a few episodes so i can't really comment but i think there's uh and honestly i think a really interesting kind of intersection is um like lgbt Inclusion and women's sports, there's always kind of a joke that there should be like a reality show, the L word for like women's sports. <laughs> and so I think like just stories like that, right? Like it, it's uh, it really like the fan base is largely LGBT. And so why not appeal to the fan base? Right. Why not give people something that's fresh and give them like a story that they are interested in, and that helps drive interest in the sport.
1: Yeah, the only show that I can think of that maybe we haven't named that did primarily center on, I think, female athletes was Cheer, but that's also not happening at an international platform. It was very, you know, it's obviously very um. Domestic, um, so that yeah, that's somewhat yeah. different too. But it part. definitely fuels like a ton of interest in a sport. Exactly, it, it seems to be correlated to more people picking it up. You know, in yeah, middle school and or high school. I, I actually
0: really like that example because I think like redefining different types of athleticism. I thought thought that cheer was amazing for that. Right, like watching yeah. the the females fly and watching them like flip and like. That totally changed my perception of just like the amount of strength and flexibility, agility that cheer requires.
1: Totally. Um, You know, you mentioned like the role of uh of like centering queer athletes in this story also. And I'm I'm curious if you followed um I think it was a couple months ago, like World Athletics announced all these new rules um that really impact transgender women athletes and have banned some from competing in certain track and field events and things like that. Um I'd be curious to hear how you sort of think the sports community is reacting to this um and, and where things go from here.
0: Yeah. Uh, so I think trans inclusion is probably the number one like topic in women's sports right now. Um, just, is it possible to build policies that both recognize trans athletes and their right to participate while also, you know, acknowledging that if you do go through puberty, you're biologically just different, um, I think from my perspective, I personally am I personally believe that trans women should be able to participate in women's sports. I think that um the values of inclusion and just allowing someone who has probably gone through such a tough identity battle and like just wants to play a sport they love to me like it kind of goes to this question of what are sports for? And I think sports, like I said at the top, can be an amazing vehicle for inclusion and change and just social justice. Um, And I think to me, at the end of the day, if a trans woman can feel comfortable and included in a sports setting, And feel affirmed in her body, in her choice to participate. I hope that that would be worth something. And yes, I recognize that, like, especially in individual sports, if they are competing and, you know, earning a certain spot, that then knocks someone else out. Yes, I recognize that that is, like, there just feels like something that is not you know, our notions of justice may be triggered by that. But to me, there's also another benefit that doesn't always like kind of make the conversation. So that's where I stand on it.
2: And as you think about just like this fight for equal treatment, you also had brought up previously the fight for equal pay. I mean, I think it's definitely been a topic that we've seen covered more, I am curious from as someone who's more on the inside of what's happening in sports, how do you feel like all of this has been received on the institutional side and institutional end? Do we think that there is be there is significant progress being made on the equal pay and fight for equal treatment realm or no?
0: I mean, it's been a lot slower than we would have liked, but I think, so obviously the U.S. women's soccer team has kind of been at the forefront of this fight saying, right. we win World Cups, why are we not paid at similar to the men who have mediocre finishes in the World Cup if they qualify at all? And they, in the last collective bargaining agreement, the U.S. women's team was able to achieve equal pay to the U.S. men. And so that was a really big step forward that it's actually like codified in the contract. Now they will be paid equally and that will be the expectation moving forward. I think the interesting question is like, what are the ripple effects both into other industries in the U.S. and then to other women's sports teams across the world? So uh, since the U.S. has signed the collective bargaining agreement and their fight for equal pay, the teams, the Canadian team has spoken out against poor treatment the Fran- french team has spoken out basically uh asked their captain and two uh, two other of their top players basically said we're not going to play in the world cup unless there's changes spain something similar has happened so i think the ripple effect within global women's soccer is super interesting and um you know when we're talking about foreign policy the impact that that can have on when your most famous athletes are sticking up and saying, we won't tolerate this treatment. And um, just like the media attention that that generates, I think, uh, you know, that's really powerful. As far as the ripple effect in other industries, I think, you know, uh, the equal pay or the pay gap is quite stubborn and we don't see a ton of movement in other industries. But I do feel like there is something to be said for just like, us recognizing what justice is and, you know, recognizing that we are still so far from it. And sports is one of the very visible, you know, industries where you can see the the pay and the treatment gap. And so I think there's, uh, there's been definitely like the the attention has been raised around pay equity by the US Women's National Team fight. And I think it's just a matter of like, in other industries, well, what do we do next? Right? Like, it's not like, always contained enough that you can like fight. But I think there is something to be said by just like the example that the US women's soccer team has set and how that like, you know, the young girls that are watching that know, like, what is okay, and what is not okay.
2: And this might be a rudimentary question. But from a business perspective, why is anyone gatekeeping in terms of equal pay? Because if you want the sport to do well, you're invested in the sport, you're championing the sport as an institution. Why wouldn't that be an obvious? like is this a result of people not thinking women's sports need as much money because they're not as watched in the past, or like why hasn't this just been more of an obvious?
0: Yeah, that's a a really potent question because I think there's just things that, Like when you think about it, it's like that just doesn't make sense. But there's a lot of ingrained beliefs that, you know, women's sports is just inherently the athletes aren't as good because they can't dunk because they can't, you know, run as fast because X, Y, Z thing. And, uh, you know, they aren't as they don't draw as many eyeballs as the NFL or, you know, they don't sell out stadiums. So therefore they're not worth the same amount of investment or they're not worth the same amount of pay. And yeah, it's a lot of it is ingrained sexism. And I think what what I say to that is just like women's sports are really in their infancy. Like the WNBA is like 27 years old. The NWSL, the soccer team is 11 or 12 years old. And so if you look at just like the time horizon compared to where the NBA was in their 27th year or the MLS was in their 11th year, it's like pretty similar. And so we just need a little bit longer runway. We need more investment. And I think one of the other things that I I think is really important is to like really reconsider what a good athlete looks like and why is like an NFL player kind of the, standard of like oh they can run fast jump high and like do all these other crazy things whereas like women athletes may not be able to run as fast or jump as high but athleticism is also about flexibility it's about balance it's about control it's about teamwork and those metrics that women often far exceed men just like are not valued as much and so why why is that? And what do we consider really good athletes? And like, how do we get out of the male frame of understanding like what excellence is in athletics?
1: I really love how you just framed that. And it actually makes me think a little bit about the fact that, you know, I think generally when we say the word strong, uh, at least in US context, we often are referring to kind of physical strength of like you know weightlifting or something like that but another way you could could define strong or strength is like something like longevity and like typically women live longer than men right and so why does the word str- like why have we come up with these certain associations um, that typically are biased against women. And I think um, you know, your examples of the ways in which athleticism um is sometimes defined in a pretty narrow way um, is is a perfect example of that. Um so one last question for you. For people listening, who is a female athlete that you just think is absolutely fantastic, somebody to watch who's maybe up and coming? And uh, and it's just really, really worth keeping an eye on and and cheering on.
0: I love this question. So one of my favorite athletes is Neka Ogumake. She actually went to Stanford and she is they call her Madam President because she is the president of the Players Union uh, for the WNBA. And just the way that she has advocated for WNBA players, um, she was at the forefront with bringing Brittany Greiner home. Um, she is out there demanding that WNBA players be treated better. Um, I think not only is she amazing on the court, but off the court, she is always willing to fight for WNBA players to raise the bar. And yeah, I just, I'm always in awe of everything that she's able to accomplish. She's also like a talented chef and like a really fashionable person and she can just do it all. So Neka Ogumake, she plays for the Los Angeles WNBA team.
2: That's very cool. Um, I will be sure to be looking her up. Um, So we're going to move on to our last segment of the show, which is what are you following? Uh, Zoe, do you want to kick us off?
1: Yeah, sure. So you know, as a podcaster, I like to listen to and also support lots of other podcasts out there. And so I just wanted to give a quick plug to a new podcast that just came out this week um, by Time Magazine, and it's called Person of the Week. And I'm a, I'm particularly excited about it because the host of the podcast is uh, a journalist and senior correspondent, Charlotte Alter, who is also a good friend, um, and she – uh she every week will interview another get a different guest who um who is you know a total uh master of their field whatever uh domain that's in the first episode that came out this week is with the actor ethan hawk and i started listening to it today and have loved it so far so just want to give that a quick plug natalia what about you
2: Well, this is a very timely episode for what I'm following. So I'm a huge golfer. I've been following the divide between the PGA Tour and the Live Golf League, which is funded by the Saudi Arabia Sovereign Wealth Fund. And for a while, players were being kicked off the PGA for playing and Live. And last week, there was an announcement that the PGA Tour is actually going to tie itself to the Live Golf League, which has caused... Definite waves. And in specific, antitrust experts are insisting that, like, the Justice Department should consider suing and to stop the agreement. And people on the Hill are worried about, like, all the risk posed by, like, a foreign government entity essentially um, assuming control over this, like, cherished American institution that is the PGA. So I'm really interested to see how that plays out because. It's just done a total 180 from when I learned about live, which was actually through that Netflix show I was telling you guys about that I was I was watching. So interested. How about you, Lucy? I
0: love that. Um, mine is also on the intersection of sport and policy, more local politics. So um, I'm a huge pickleball player, and the turf wars have been heating up, especially here in Chicago where I live. Uh, There's a park next to me that basically has. Uh, the parents enraged that the pickleballers are taking over and um, you know, there's a black top with no nets, but the the parks district had laid down lines for three courts. So people could come bring their nets, set them up, play. Um, and the park was always crowded. And so the parents were annoyed and the neighbors were saying that the constant like thwack of the paddles was really irritating them. And so A lot of I think there was a a lot of them went to the aldermen and suddenly two of the lines were removed. Two sets of the lines were removed and they had painted over like four square and some other uh, hopscotch lines so you can no longer play on two of them. And then a sign went up that said pickleball hours are 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. and 6 to 8 p.m. every day. And so it's a really interesting question of like, okay, these are public parks who's allowed and like whose voice carries within this community. Right. Obviously I'm a pickleball player. So I am.
2: I'm like, who's choosing to like play hopscotch over pickleball. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah,
0: So the eight year olds in like the park are, uh, yeah, it's, it's been interesting. I think it's just like an interesting, you know, problem where it's like a, a sport that's growing and these the cities cannot keep up with the demand. Um, You know, how do you turn around courts quickly? How do you find the space? How can you repurpose? Can you change some of the zoning of different parking lots or other areas where we could be creative about creating more courts? Um, yeah, I know this is playing out in cities all over, all over the country. So good luck to all the local mayors out there. <laughs>
2: Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Lucy. Um, Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find the show. You can follow me online at Natalia Talker, Zoe at Z. Weinberg, and connect with Lucy Montgomery on LinkedIn. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. And with that, join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.